大家好 ，I'm Bella from Bella Simple Chinese School. If you are beginner, intermediate, advanced, looking for HSK study, business Chinese, or simply want to improve your everyday communication, I'm the teacher for you. Come and join me for a free trial class at Bella Simple Chinese School. This is Kurt Canay with his song "Candy Girl" on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. Tell Craig your story. Today we'll be speaking to Kurt Kenny. Now, Kurt Kenny is from St. Petersburg, Florida, USA. He has a major in education technology. Now, Kurt is a multi instrumentalist and has become a leading figure in the American folk music scene in China, using his music to bridge cultural divides and create positive energy wherever he performs. Now, Kurt's sound and repertoire is drawn from traditional North American folk songs, fiddle tunes. Now, Kurt has recorded and performed on fiddle, guitar, banjo. Now, Kurt has played in bands such as the Hutong Yellow Weasels, the Mountain High, China's first old-time square dance sitting band, China's Poet Rocket. Now, Kurt is also an avid music educator, coordinating tours for international musicians, visiting China, and organizes music camps and music events for all ages. 
But before we go, please go to our website. We are at Podbean. Tell Craig Your Story at podbean.com. We have a link tree which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major streaming services. We also have a YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates because I know some of you prefer the video. We have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. At Till Craig Your Story. All right, here we go. This is my chat with Kurt on Till Craig Your Story podcast. Hi, Kirk. How you doing this afternoon? Hey, Craig. Great to be here. And of all the bad circumstances... Uh... Well, yeah, the broken foot is a little <laughs> a little inconvenient, but I, I do appreciate your patience in coming all the way to my place. Wonderful. All the way to Pudong. Had a little accident there. You got one foot up on the table there. So. I d- yeah, it's, it's, um, I've got my foot raised. It's trying to keep the swelling down. <laughs> so if I, I can walk on it a little bit on the heel now, but if I... If I if I keep it below my heart too long, it starts to swell up like a balloon. So that's not great. So how has this affected your music performing and your teaching? <laughs> it's affected and... everything. I, yeah. uh, so mainly because my main day job right now is teaching at a primary school downtown. Hmm. Uh, it, the broken foot means that I couldn't, I couldn't move. So that means I couldn't go upstairs. I couldn't like stand. Uh. I couldn't... I couldn't even go anywhere. Like so, the first six weeks I was basically just in bed, waiting, wow. waiting, trying to work on stuff at home, try to plan stuff for my sub who was great. As far as music goes, actually it was kind of good. I couldn't rehearse with my band, which sucked, but I could practice a ton. So, right. um, and were you writing your music as well? Writing stuff. Well, you'd be surprised what comes to your head when you're just. Day after day, lying in bed, right. like a broken yes. foot. So not much motivation. <laughs> uh, there's, you know, some weird idea will come in, and then you'll go three days with like just staring at the wall. But most of the time, I actually spent just practicing guitar. Right. I think I got a lot better at guitar. My my calluses got oh. super thick. There you like go. super super thick, just because every day, noodle noodle noodle, watching. You know, like artist works videos, trying to like study more stuff, and I'm getting fairly advanced now. So I, I need, I need more people to, I need more ideas, you know, and more advanced teachers, I guess. You know, for example, like on artist works, you've got like Brian Sutton or something. You can watch his videos, and then you can send a video in of you playing, and then he'll send, you know, he'll comment and send you a video back about yeah, what right. to do. So. That's that's kind of what I need now, yeah. and then I need to go woodshed. So that was it was really good for woodshedding, but it was not good for making money. Mm. <laughs> not good for that at all. It was good for spending money. Right. We've all been through through it, like uh, twenty twenty and and this year. So uh, yeah. for you, how have you sort of adapted in this sort of period? I think one of the big things in terms of music is just focusing things online. You know, and then also just being okay with the fact that I've got all this time now to practice. Mm. Just simplifying things. I mean, prior to prior to the pandemic, I was a performing musician, essentially, and teacher. And then after the pandemic, I tried to keep going as long as I could, and then I just really needed money, you know? Mm. And so I just, I decided to get back into 
classroom teaching because I mean, a I love it, but I was trying to kind of avoid it for a long time because I just wanted I felt like, you know, I'm still fairly young. I should be using this time to really focus on music heavily, and then later I can like ease up. But mm. that time, what the pandemic showed pandemic showed me was that this is the time to ease up actually. Mm. So I'm kind of getting back into education and then working that those two facets of my identity, I guess my my projects together so I've got education music and then there's just it's a good time to dream yeah. <laughs> dream about what you want to do you know next but like you said it's a good way to reassess and sort of focus yeah, exactly. on some new goals on what you want to do right yeah and I, I think probably all of the musicians of the world got better during this period mm. you know just because we were all forced to sort of sit around and practice and think harder so, you know, the music of the world is in a way better for, you know, it, it could have been worse. It could have been the same. Uh, but I think the music is definitely better now for, for all the trouble it cost us. But uh, I think at this point, I'm not that interested in performing. So I'm, I'm trying to find ways of collaborating with specific musicians and, and recording something anything uh, I'm trying to find projects that bring groups of people together that I can I don't have to be involved in it specifically but I could help organize it you know um, bringing bands together or m students and musicians together whatever I'm really interested now in, in video so I was interested in video before but you just you know, couldn't how do I say this hmm Video is hard. Yeah, very hard. Podcasting is already like pretty logistically complex. Yes, you know, and time, time and resources are finite. So, but video just makes it like another complex layer to that whole thing. So, oh, yeah. I tried to kind of avoid it in some ways, acknowledging that eventually I would have to do it. So the last few years have been kind of just slowly sitting in my little hole, like and in the dark, you know, with my little claws <laughs> over my keyboard, like slowly learning how to edit and plan, especially like pre-planning for, for filming and stuff. Um, I've got a friend who, his name is Rob. He runs, um, carrot productions and he's been basically like a mentor for just asking any questions. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I can ask him anything and he'll almost right away, come back at me like yeah yeah here's what you should do blah 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 blah. he's really a really helpful resource and really good friend and he really likes to help musicians too so that's been good so video is video is the future video is the future for you anyway for me <laughs> <laughs> I, my master's is in ed tech so it's video is something that is it's an incredible tool for, you know, depending how you use it. Mm. So, you know, like a big part of EdTech is not just like, let's bring high-tech stuff into the classroom, woo! It's, it's really about what do you actually need and then what, what tools are available and what can you try to, you know, use so that the, you're helping the need the most, you know. So taking that to music is, is also an interesting puzzle. Hmm. And I noticed you did the, the mall and masters as well was that i did yeah, was that recent? yeah uh so that was another thing about the lockdowns was 
it gave me a nice chunk of time to completely focus on a master's program. Right. I mean, we were teaching online, and in my case, I was re pre-recording videos uh, and then sending those in. So, like I said, you know, in my hole with like the claws over it, there was a lot of that. But at the same time, I was doing a lot of work for that program, and it was super interesting because you you basically don't think about the kinds of uh, skills that are needed in ed tech. Like, you just think of the tech, right? Right, yeah. But actually, for ed tech, a huge part of it is working with teachers and other educational professionals to, like, just ask to talk to them, building relationships with them, seeing what a school or, I mean, at any level, like, what does the teacher need in the classroom? What does the school need school-wide? What does a district need? You know, all these things. Um, it's really interesting because you're, you're asking questions to people and then you get this information, you go out and then try to use that information to, to find more information. Yes. It's, it's, it's almost like, I mean, you're doing a lot of research, you're doing a lot of data collection, surveys, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not what I expected at all. And I'm glad because what I expected, I thought just, oh, like, how do you set up a, like a Wi-Fi terminal for a school, which it kind of is like that too, but yeah. you know, the relationships part I think is super interesting. Hmm. Yeah, right. All right. Well, let's go back uh, to where you come from originally. Like, mm -hmm. do you believe you come from Florida? Yes, originally from Born? St. Petersburg, Florida. St. Petersburg, Florida, as we would say there. So, tell me about uh, growing up there, and were your mom and dad uh, involved in the music entertainment industry? No. My mom worked for newspapers. She was a news librarian right. for a long time. Um, and my dad had a business called uh, Tampa International Forwarding. It was like a, basically a middleman company that helped private auto dealerships reserve spaces and handle all the paperwork for reserving containers on container ships for cars. So like someone from somewhere in the world comes here, they, they need to... They buy some cars at an auto auction, mm. something like that, and then they need to get the cars back to their country. And so his job was to coordinate that between the different parties and especially the shipping companies and the ports and stuff and handle all the paperwork. Yeah, right. Which is a pretty niche job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where does this music fit into this for you? Like, when did you start learning how to play all these instruments mm. that you play now? I mean, I can remember the first instruments I played, like, oh, a recorder and sax oh. saxophone and stuff. But I, I don't, I never, it was never like, I'm going to do music. Mm. It was never that. It was more like, the, music is just something, one of the things I'm doing. I When I was a real, really young kid, I hated practicing. Yeah, and right. The complete opposite. Now my favorite thing is to, do, to practice. Like, I would much prefer to just be in a little small dark room playing guitar or fiddle or woodshedding or something rather than being on stage. And I think stage has its uses, and especially for connecting and building relationships, but it's just not as personally fulfilling as watching yourself grow, you know? And it's like, oh man, I, now I can do this! Right. So, and I definitely didn't feel that when I was a kid. Like, when I was a kid, I just was like, oh, I don't want to do this. But <laughs> I, I also didn't not want to do it. It was kind of a kind of a little weird balance there but my parents were super supportive of it but there was never this idea that like oh you can go be a musician yeah, you know right. 
Or like, oh, the music industry is actually fast and very complicated, and there are many jobs involved with music. You could be a entertainment lawyer. No one was ever. Right. <laughs> no one ever said that. Yeah. It was kind of understood that I would go and do like a real job. Mm. You know, I appreciate them looking out for me. I don't blame them for it, and I I certainly don't blame society because I think that a lot of that comes from social misconceptions of what is involved with music. Basically, mm. you you think oh music the job of music is being a, a like. A dingy, poor rock musician yeah. who sleeps late, yeah, that's right. addicted to drugs. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's whole cliche. Not, <laughs> that's not all there is. <laughs> and in fact, like the the most successful musicians I know, like the ones who have been able to do music for the longest, mm. are extremely well organized. Yes. Like they're very personally disciplined, and they are diverse in their range of interests too. Like their music isn't the only thing they do. It's one of the main things they do, but they also do other important things for them and like for other people. Um, and a lot of them are also like into finance or something, you know, because after a while, if you want to sustain yourself doing music, you kind of have to pay attention to your money, right. you know, otherwise you can't do music for that long. And, and I didn't reach that point, that understanding until I think I was in college or maybe right. a little after this. I had a roommate who was from Pakistan and he was a math major, but he played tabla also. Oh, yeah, right. So he, he was studying tabla, and then eventually he became a math and tabla teacher. And living next to him was incredibly inspirational, informative, influential, you know, eye of the eyes. Because you would have been able to see his sort of devotion, passion. Passion, also the interconnectedness of two completely different discs, well, seemingly completely different dif uh, disciplines. Mm. You know, actually seeing math and music overlaid on top of each other in my face with someone actually playing, tabla is really complicated and being able to keep track of all the beats isn't expressly mathematical in the sense like, oh, let's write on a chalkboard, but it is extremely mathematical <laughs> in the sense that right. you're doing mathematical operations in your head constantly to keep track yes. of where you are and what your intention is and how to lock up with other people. So. That's a very intuitive kind of math, but it's still math. The idea of like, oh, music isn't just music. It's not just one discipline. It's like, there was another kid I, I, who was a drummer. Um, and I remember sitting at dinner once and he, was, he just came over and like we were chatting a little bit. And he had gone through some kind of transformative musical experience, I think in Ghana, like studying drumming mm -hmm. there. And he was like, you know, I, I finally accepted that I'm a musician. Like, I am a musician, and I now understand that, and it's okay. Like, it's part of who I am. I don't need to do anything with it. I can if I want to. And that, that idea really stuck with me, the idea of, like, accepting that you were a musician. Because for a long time before that, like, you know, the parents yes. saying, like, oh, you can't do music, and stuff like that. But that was the first time I was like, oh, I am a musician. I have to accept that music has to be part of my life because I've been doing it this whole time and kind of not really acknowledging it. It was always there. I, uh, like my freshman year of high school, I dropped the saxophone and I went to my friend's house after school and his dad had left like an old electric guitar lying around. And so I was just noodling on it. I came home. My dad was like sitting there at the table. I said, Hey dad, do we have a guitar? around and he was like yeah in the in the back on top of the shelf you know it was like completely covered in dust 
So I went and grabbed it down, coughing, and like cleaned it off. Um, and you know, it was, it was this old little Yamaha, kind of a. Later, I've realized it's kind of a unique Yamaha. I've never found another one like it. Yeah, really? um, kind of, a, I still have it in the states, um, and it's, it was grody, you know, <laughs> and I didn't know how to clean a guitar, so I just dealt with that grody little guitar for uh, a couple years. Um, but that, that was all I needed, and I just once I got to guitar, I just couldn't stop. Right. That was like, oh, this is my instrument. This is the thing that I need to do every day, at least for a little bit, and. I basically, since then, I've played almost every single day for, like, hours, you know, for years. That was, no, that was 1999. Yeah. So, basically, since then, I've just played a ton of guitar. <laughs> and so, you, you said you also went to Vermont as well, right? Bennington College in Vermont, yeah. And it was, it was full with musicians. And, and Bennington College was interesting because um, I was pretty sheltered and, like, not one of those kids who knows what they want to do or has any sense of goal goal setting or like the idea of goal setting I didn't even learn until I was like in my 30s <laughs> like I wish someone had been like hey if you decide what you want to do then you can like make fairly concrete steps to get there like yes. whoa <laughs> oh my god I can do a lot now uh but I was just kind of fumbling my way through and uh I, I knew I wanted to go to Vermont I knew I wanted to get out of Florida uh, not because Florida was horrible or anything. I just like felt this need to get go somewhere different, yes. really far away. Um, and so it was like that. a growing experience being away from your family. I guess. I mean, part of it too is I went to summer camp in Vermont for oh, two yes. years right. in a row, and that really showed me like, oh my god, like the northeast of the U.S. is incredibly beautiful. Uh, upstate New York, Vermont, that area is is it's. Like, you go to a forest, and you're like, oh, my God, I just need to be in this forest. Mm. It's, it was kind of like that. Um, I don't know that it was any more complex than that. <laughs> I wish it, it was, because then I could make it sound like I had more just getting back to intention nature. or something. But it was just like, mm. I just need to be there. And yeah. I was fortunate in that some of the schools that I applied to accepted me up there. And so um, I went there surrounded by a bunch of like very self-motivated and self-disciplined kids <laughs> and, and being in that environment I think really helped me start to get to that point where like oh I can kind of I can make choices for myself and I I can decide what I want but even then like I remember sitting at graduation and then being like congratulations here's your diploma you know I'm sitting there looking at my diploma and being like Oh shit! I don't. What do I do now? <laughs> what am I gonna do now? My entire life has been school. Mm. This is like my entire life has been, like you go to school now, and that's all you have to do really. But now that it was done, it's like oh, okay. I guess from here on out, it's like I actually have to do this. I have to like jump off into the deep end and like take control here. Um, and I did. I mean, I came to China, like, that was... But I, my, my reasons weren't, like, particularly clear. It was just like, I want to learn more Chinese. <laughs> I want to get involved with the music scene in China. That's basically it. Right. Yeah. But why? <laughs> but yeah. what was the fascination about China? The jury you there? Did you know people? Was there people living from China in Vermont, or...? Yeah, I mean, I took... I, so, my freshman year of college, I was thinking, like, okay, I'm going to do Italian. <laughs> and I... Because in 
uh, I went to an IB school in Florida, mm-hmm. and we had the theory of knowledge class, and so, okay, you learn all these things like philosophy, learn, it's kind of a broad strokes kind of thing, like learn some uh, opera, yes. sure, why not? Yes. And so I really got obsessed with the opera. Like, I was like, oh, damn, I want to, like, learn more about opera and, like, go to Italy and, like, learn Italian and do this. Yes. Uh, and then I got to college and was taking Italian classes. Um, and I'm good at language, so I was, like, doing fine. But I, it just wasn't, it wasn't like guitar, like, where it was just like, this is, this is part of me. I must do this. Like, yes. I must. It's like this calling or something. It pulls you from your guts and you're like and you don't like even if you resist it it's still gonna rip you out rip your guts out <laughs> between the years of freshman and sophomore year um i went to a chinese program mm. at middlebury and i had decided to go to italy so i had like already mm. gone through the process of transferring to a school in italy <laughs> but the summer prior to that i i was like I'm going to do this program, this nine-week program where I only speak Chinese. And I did it. I came out fluent. and After nine weeks? Yeah, the Middlebury programs are amazing. They're, where they're do I sign good. up? Yeah, they're expensive. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's super worth it. They're really, really good. Wow. Um, they're very intensive. You, you basically, you go there, you sign a contract that says, I will only speak my target language for, like, depending on the language, it's either five or nine weeks. Um. So how was that? So how was that to start off with? Like, was your Chinese okay when you first started? I, I knew zero about China. I didn't know anything about China or Chinese. Like, I knew China was a country. How but frustrating was that for you about that first week? Zero. It wasn't frustrating at all. It was super exciting. Like, right. it was like a puzzle I was trying to solve. Or yeah. Something. It was like, oh, oh, mm, okay, oh, 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 I can't speak anything. That first week or so, they gave you like a little survival Chinese list, hmm. and then you, you go and you you learn from your classes, you learn from your peers. You know, there's other kids there who who have great Chinese, and you can pick up a lot from them, just like hmm. kids in school. Yeah, um, it's it's really a very well programmed. It's been around for a long time, um, so like I, I'm really proud of that. It, it was that was really the first time I spoke a second language, like. Right. I'd studied Spanish, I'd studied Italian that first year, and then I would study some French later too, but like, I never, any of those, even in Spanish, which I learned from like a very young age, I never actually spoke it fluently as a second language. Well, being from Florida, that you'd have that sort of Spanish connection down Yeah, there's definitely a lot of exposure there, Mm -hmm. but I never actually had to use it. Like, we had the class, okay, check mark, done. You know, yes. but in, in my life, I, I wasn't, I didn't go out much. I had some friends, you know, and my friends were great. I had lots of great opportunities. I was very privileged and fortunate. But I didn't spend that much time in environments where I had to speak Spanish. So I just never developed that fluency that is is subconscious, you know. And Chinese was the first language where I did that. And I, I think the Middlebury program was 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 a big part of that. Yeah. But because of that, I started to see, oh, this is how you're supposed to do it. Okay, it, now I feel kind of more confident about becoming fluent in any language. Like, right. like whatever I wanted. I could become fluent if I wanted to. Oh, this is what you're supposed to do. Oh. So 
that was that was a big eye opener too. Is like because I got that Chinese, it's like oh now I could actually like try and learn other things for real. You know, the getting fluent was very the... basic fluency, not like right. You know, and I still couldn't read very well. You know, um, definitely couldn't read newspapers. After that, I I went to Italy and was like, oh my god, I'm studying. I'm here in Italy learning Italian, and that's good. Except, actually, what I want to do now is learn Chinese. Damn it! You know, um, so I transferred back to the school uh, and ended up taking Chinese programs there. They had a, like a very small Chinese department, one professor. But they, Bennington had a thing with uh, Williams College, which is nearby, where you could have dual enrollment. So you could take classes at Bennington and a class at Williams College mm. um, in Massachusetts, just over the border, basically. So uh, I took Chinese lessons at. Bennington, I took them at Williams. Yeah, right. Um, and so that was kind of a nice bundle, I guess you can say. Yeah. But at, after a point, like, I started doing these music classes, and I was taking Chinese, and I realized, oh, Chinese music is super interesting, and music in Asia is super interesting. Uh, I was also taking, like, traditional North American music classes, too, and so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this, this folk music stuff is awesome. Like, my dad had me listening to folk music and Motown a lot of Motown when I was a kid but he didn't really play he used to I guess play folk guitar of some kind but he when I was growing up he barely I never saw him play guitar really Um, and my mom wasn't really a musician either but she would also listen to every music basically like we had records and CDs in the house and it was all like there was always music on like just always music and so I got a lot of exposure to different kinds of music and so there's a a musical environment but not necessarily in in musical application outside of school so once I put started putting those two together like oh this is becoming kind of a path Mm. that's sort of slowly emerging in front of me like maybe I can in the music library at the school they had all these great albums as a music library um, and they had some of the rough guys from China. Some of the this was the early two thousands, so right. there were there wasn't that much of there basically wasn't very much on the internet about the Chinese music scene. There was a few things. It was really hard to get information, um, and going to Beijing was a good way to do it. Yeah, and I did like I, I studied abroad there twice while I was so in college. When was your first time? Uh, 2006 was the first time that was, I guess that was part of my junior year. Uh, and then I went back to do some field work and like research there, uh, winter. Later. So what was your first experience being in Beijing? What, what was that like? It was okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, in, in retrospect, compared to the later experiences I had there, it was yeah. not very good. I mean, it was very insular. Like, I hung out with a lot of, like, other foreign students. Mm. Like, I was... But in terms of, like, getting to where I needed to be eventually, it was, like, a nice stepping stone. And it was kind of a good transition. Um, I went to Capital Normal University, which I thought was Beijing Normal University. (laughs) When I signed (laughs) up for it, I didn't realize there was... You know, at the time, I remember trying to apply to this stuff. I was basically just doing it myself and trying to figure out, like, how do I get over there? Like, Mm. so I, I... did all the paperwork, I got over there, and then I realized, oh, okay, here I am, 
this is huge. Like, this is, like, really big. This is not at all what I expected from this place. Um, and I knew almost right away that my, my Chinese was definitely going to get better. Like, just mm. being like, oh, shit, okay. This was the right decision. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm definitely horrified about how many people are around me right now. Yeah. You know, I spent the week, the first week, I think, someone helped me go to uh, Wumei, you know, like the the supermarket in Beijing oh, right. and uh, I bought some toilet paper I bought some some kind of snacks or something so I wouldn't die and then I basically just lived for the first week in my room and like didn't go out at all like <laughs> eh, didn't have any friends yet by the end of that semester I, f- I felt very comfortable in Beijing but I still hadn't actually really been in Beijing I hadn't done anything in Beijing really I'd gone to a few places um but most of the time I was studying, I was in my room, I was just existing, which I, I think at that point was enough. But um, it was really later years, like after I came back here to do some research um, and then came back to move here, which was two years later, basically, <clears throat> after graduating. Um, that was when I was like, okay, now I'm actually doing things here. I'm actually engaging with hmm. Beijing, with people, with the country, you know, with, in, a, in a more practical way. So getting more connections in, yeah. the music, in the music scene? Well, not... The music connections took a while. Right. Um, I think just because it was just so so obscure about how to find information about it, like where to go. Like the best place to get information f- for sure for me was like the insider's guide to mm. Beijing. Like mm. that thing was like my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Um and, you know, there are expat magazines and stuff, but they, they would point you to a place, and you're like, okay, well, there's a place, I can go there, but that doesn't mean I'm going to like what I see there, I'm going to like that experience, you know. So it took me a while to figure out which places I were reliably good, for one, and then it took me a while to figure out which places had people that I could jive with, you know. Mm. And I think one of the most significant moments, you know, I live really close to D22, which is like a a rock punk club basically right. like an underground rock club um it was really close to Beida, basically um there's also um there's a couple couple other places over there too but d22 was really good like everything there that was like that played was really good um and being near that was really helpful that kind of like gave me a lock on like okay this is a direction this is like this is what i'm getting i'm getting closer to what i want and I had found some CDs in, in uh, my library at school. Basically, this guy had come to Beijing in the late 90s, and he recorded a bunch of the underground musicians there, like mm. Hang on the Box, you know, uh, Wild Children, Yehaidze. Um, Yehaidze now are huge, but back then they were kind of like still kind of tiny. Mm. Um, and... They had opened a bar, but it had closed by the time I got there called He, like River Bar. And a lot of the stuff I'd been trying, like slowly trying to find information about, because I'd, he- I'd heard these songs, I was like, oh my God, these are really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, especially the Wild Children songs. Like, the Wild Children made me want to come to Beijing. They made me want to come here. Wow. You know? So it's like, oh my God, this song is really good. <laughs> um, th- probably the most important moment of all of that was like when I met uh, Xiao Hu from Ajinai. Uh, now he's in Gaul. Um, yeah, but right. he was he was one of the original uh, he was the original horsehead fiddle player for Hangai. Mm. Do you know that band? Hangai. It's like a 
inner Mongolian folk rock. Um, but they basically, he was their horsehead fiddle player for like five years or something, and then he got really tired. He just got exhausted. So he came back off of tour and was like, like vegging out, like super tired. And, but he would, he would go and jam at this place called Amalal, which is a, a little um, lounge, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Huisua <laughs> kind yeah. of place. They would have jams there sometimes, like not like an open jam necessarily, but like some specific musicians would come together to jam there and then people could come listen and like, you know, buy drinks or whatever. And we went to go see this jam with him. And at during the break, I went up to him and was like, can I ask you something? And he's like, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, I was, I wanted to know like, where can I study horsehead fiddle? Like, where can I go? Who can, who can I study with? I, I love this instrument. Um, and he said, I can teach you. I was like, wow. what? <laughs> you know, um, this is before WeChat. You can't just, so yeah. like, it was just like the little shitty Nokia bar phone. Like I got his phone number and like texted him. Like, right. Oh. right. So I took some lessons with him for a while, like about a year or so. And we became friends. I started jamming with him a little bit. And that was really, he was my channel into the, the overall music world. Right. Like that led to basically everything else. It was like meeting him. Um, and I had met him previously when I was doing research um, at a bar called Wuming Galdi. It was like a no-name bar. Um, no, no, Nameless Highland, I think is what it was called. And that was a... He had played there and I had talked to him like during the break too, like about throat singing a little bit. And he, he kind of remembered that, which I think is why he was like willing to <laughs> do some lessons. Probably, probably needed money too. <laughs> um, which actually, that reminds me, a really important thing for me musically, you know, mm. like in terms of, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, like, okay, do you know Genghis Blues, that movie plus album that came out, it was like a documentary, this blind musician goes to Tuva and participates in throat singing competition. But the, the, the crazy thing is he found out about it and taught himself how to do it basically by like listening to these like obscure tapes that he found of the Tuvan a really important Tuvan band. I have it written down here for your three uh, biggest influences on your music. Oh, okay. Well, this is definitely for sure one of them. And my friend Nathan, I like went to visit him in Minnesota and we were just driving around a lake. You know, he was showing me around and we were listening to this. He was like, man, listen to this. I'm like, okay. And I listened to it, like the throat singing. I'm like, okay. What's, what's what is happening that? here? It's like, <laughs> this is one person. I was like, what? And, and that led me down this like road to interest in music in, of Asia, which mm. at the time I'd been really interested. I, you know, I've been playing guitar for a few years. I, I was really interested in, this is high school, in like punk rock, ska, stuff like that. Like right. that was my original guitar was like some, some One, Motown two, three, slash four. like <laughs> Vietnam era oh, music, cool. you know, like, there's something ha you know that that was yes. like the first song I ever learned on guitar right me versus the gimme gimme's like sublime stuff um and then that was like oh how can I how can I make my guitar sound like that like how can mm -hmm. I instead of just playing like these chords do 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 like yeah. maybe I could make my guitar sound like some of those tuba instruments oh my god like and then that really started opening up to some different kinds of musical avenues like and um, trying to find music of the world as opposed to like these fairly narrow genres. 
that that was really a big turning point i guess you could say but is that popular is it actually ever happened in the u.s are there people doing that throat sort of thrusting is super popular and at that point i would say it was becoming super popular already like right. i i heard about it because nathan heard about it because it was becoming popular and mm. when I say popular, I don't mean like, oh, everybody in high school is doing it. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like... It's starting to get a bit of a underground sort of... Yeah, like, musicians were, were aware of it. Uh, musicians were trying to mix it into their music. Mm. Like, a lot of mm. world, let's, like, world music that sort of, like, mixed dance style stuff was using it. You, like, have the throat singing on... And then, you know, like, mixing those together. But... There, in Florida, where I was, there was like there was no one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was so. It was a little tricky finding stuff. <laughs> hmm. um, but I, you know, listening to some of that, I, I was able to try and teach myself how to do it. Mm. You know, and like the Genghis Blues, I think the, one of the biggest takeaways from that is like these different musics around the world. We can all learn to do them. It's not like one only if you're from there can you can you do it you know you can teach yourself how to do it and that's an incredible form of respect right mm -hmm. like yeah. i respect what you're doing and you know if we get to work together then we respect each other so mm -hmm. these days basically my whole musical life is generally under the umbrella of bringing people together like mm -hmm. bring people together that way through music they can collaborate or learn from each other they can learn Basically, if you learn to listen to someone, it's really hard not to respect them. And I like the quote that it had on you. You're bringing music to bridge cultural differences and bringing it together. That's much better. That's a much better way to say it. That's <laughs> what I just did. But, That's my uh, way. But tell us how you did that, like in China. Like, uh, I noticed that you've gone to different schools. Yeah. And you're also... Uh, bringing in like square dancing which i thought was very interesting as well so yeah so tell us about uh these that, that next step yeah so once i got over here and was like you know doing stuff i fell into the world of traditional american music <laughs> like i was over i came all the way to china and then got involved with traditional american music because once mm -hmm. i was over here i was like oh i really miss my parents and i really miss like American folk music. What? My music. <laughs> yeah. I don't I didn't I guess you could say it was mine. I just felt like I came out of it somehow and I didn't realize it until I was over here. And cuz it was it's people, right? Like folk music is it folk music shows you the way things really are. You mm -hmm. know, like pop music is like the way things the pop music is like what people want things to be like or like how they imagine things are like or like this sort of like interpreted way. But folk music is the way things basically usually are. I, I, I just got to this point where I was like, kind of wanting to do this all the time. And uh, some musicians in Beijing, I got word that there was going to be a, a, a visiting square dance caller and fiddler who was going to come named Michael Ismario. This was 2011. So uh, he came to visit and they needed someone. He came because some, a, a couple had hired him call a square dance at their wedding anniversary mm. so they had hired this place called the orchard like they booked this place out in beijing um and they wanted to have this event and they needed the caller but they also needed a band so for the band they needed a guitarist and 
so someone asked me like oh hey do you want to i was like yes <laughs> great um i knew nothing about square dance guitar which is like a very specific way of playing totally different from what i played how is that different to be a square dance so first of all it's way simpler and more difficult than you would ever expect all right so in most guitar like most of the guitar you're probably going to see on the street or in a club is going to be something like this you know some something like, yeah yes you know some, something with some chords like maybe something like that there's a lot or maybe finger finger style stuff you do some whatever these kinds of things but in square dance guitar that's way too much yeah because there's there's other instruments doing those things right. so it's this orchestral idea where like each instrument has a role and you stick to your role kind of and then combined when they work together then it sounds right but if each instrument is doing too much then it just sounds like a mess mm. and the whole point like there's no drums in the in this music mm. so you, like the guitar needs to be laying down a really straight like rhythmic thing a, a backbone basically like the guitar and the bass like in jazz for example they're basically just like laying down this thing against which everything else can like sound interesting right yes. you know? so square dance guitar is you play a chord but you're you're alternating between bass strings and strums so like bass string kind of like that one note yeah or you might alternate might do a little bass run like but you might do that quite a bit faster so like this just this but each dance is like 10 minutes long and unlike other styles of guitar where you can like release and get that mute I'm squeezing and letting go here. Squeeze, let go. Squeeze, let go. Yeah. So my callus is like, okay, not so bad. <laughs> but for square dance guitar, you need the thickest calluses ever. And right. during those, those square dances, we spent two weeks practicing and like playing gigs around that time and then doing the actual event. We also had a separate square dance in a temple, which was awesome. Wow. Um, over by the bell tower. So my calluses were so worn that I actually, under my one of them i got a blister like underneath the callus that popped and then the callus came off on the, the top so i had like this crater in the tip of my finger oh, it was wow. super weird and extremely painful <laughs> after a point you have to be okay with the fact that you're not doing anything quote-unquote interesting mm. and that so at first you're like i want to add some stuff and then the fiddler smacks you with the bow is like just play chords <laughs> you know like no yes and like, oh, dang, you're right. This is the right way. So it becomes this, like, very meditative thing. And you you start to really appreciate how athletic music is. Mm. You know, like, music is a sport. Like, it is endurance. It's very tiny because you're using your hands. Yes. But you have to be very... You have to have things in control. You have to sit right if you want to be able to do it right. Like, you have to have your body in a pretty good place. That tabla player I mentioned... His point, he had a great point about being healthy. Like, he would run. He was also a runner. Mm. And he's, his point was like, I need to take care of my body because my body is what does the music. 
like at, up to that point no one had ever connected that for me like I never thought about like oh even though I'm making music happening it's happening through like there's the me and my intent but my body is between me and the my intent and the guitar you know like I do have to take care of this body just as much as I have to take care of the guitar. Like, yes. More so. So things like breathing, how mm. to sit so you have good posture, all of that influences your ability to play longer. And then in a broader strokes, it makes it influences your ability to do music for your whole life. So you know, around that time, I started so thinking true. like, okay, music is amazing. I want to do music. You know, I had this like peace idea, you know, like music diplomacy kind of thing. Like, okay, this is all starting to grow a little bit I need to if I if I'm gonna do this for my whole life you know Indian musicians they play until they die you know it's <laughs> not like like okay you know it's not about youth it's about getting better and better and better and better and better and better and mm. like more interesting so you play until you're 99 and then you die and then you stop playing you're like the the best players are super old yeah <laughs> you know um, that that is really encouraging and like very relieving in a way because like no matter how where you are now basically later on you'll be better if you keep doing it and if you keep paying attention and like doing having good habits that kind of generally pool together to make the overall thing you know more uh sustainable yes i guess but basically that that band was like oh my god i have to play fiddle (laughs) Because I was playing guitar, I was like, but fiddle is where it's at. So I took some lessons with Michael, and um, he went back, and I just got obsessed with the fiddle. Like, Mm. super obsessed with the fiddle. And I would take it with me to class, you know, and then I would play in between classes. Uh, If During summer camps, I would take it with me to the hotel room, and any time I wasn't teaching, I'd be playing fiddle or eating or fiddle, you know. I just got completely obsessed with it. So in... October 2012, there was this Halloween gig at a massive conference hall mm. for, it was like a promotional event for like Cypriot visas or like, you know, to for wealthy people who were interested in emigrating and like, where can I buy a, you know, a green card? Um, and we were the band for that event, plus some like a keyboard player and like something, a saxophone or something. So that turned into... That turned into the band the Hutong Yellow Weasels, which is like that band. I think. I think is probably the first full-time old-time string band that had been that had been played here. Or that. So it's just about to say, like, how many people are doing that sort of style of music? None. <laughs> and then um, how popular did it come? Because... So first of all, it was not that popular. Mm. But we did it anyway because we loved it. And people who listened to it liked it. But we weren't that good yet um, in the beginning. Um, but because the, the thing that drew us to the music in the first place and the reason we thought it would be a good idea to do it even though we weren't that good mm-hmm. um, was that it's a community music. It's, a, uh, it's about connecting with other people in person and I guess online too. But it's about a shared experience as opposed to just like listen to this stuff like come to my show and listen to me you know which is fine but this particular music it doesn't require virtuosity and it doesn't require previous knowledge Mm. 
and I think that's where the square dance comes in is because the square dance, because we've done these things with Michael firsthand, like how incredible it is to see a group of strangers do a dance and then suddenly be friends it's or just mm. suddenly break the ice so quickly it was just incredible and it, it was so obvious that this was a, an incredible tool to help people reconnect with each other and even with themselves too you know later at that point cell phones you know and like smartphones were there but they weren't so widespread like the next few years were like when everybody has the phones but we just figured okay people are so wrapped up in technology like they really need this antidote to kind of balance things out like they really need they need some way to help them connect with people i'm shy and i don't like you know using up energy to like yes. connect with people necessarily but if i have an excuse like a situation where i know my role you know if i know what i'm supposed to do in this scenario the situanario <laughs> then i like that's what square dance does it gives you okay like all you have to do is just do this dance. You just stand here, do these things, and you'll have fun and you'll relax. You know, so we did. We started doing that basically in Beijing uh, every week. Right. Um, it started at a little place called the Multi Dog, which is like a tiny, so tiny. It was like <laughs> it's the size of my kitchen. Right. Or like, or, I don't know. This living room is almost too big for right. that, like. But it was. It, it was like a pizza place and tiny bar, basically. It was yeah, right. the size of a bathroom or something. Yeah. And then uh, we played there on Friday nights. And then eventually, uh, the following year, we got a Monday night gig at Modernista. Mm. Um, and Modernista was amazing. It's an amazing bar. Um, Monday night, not so busy, which is, I think, why they let us do it. Uh, but we somehow, they were super nice to us and like let us do this thing for about a year, a little more than a year, basically. Mm. Every Monday night was like square dance night. Um, and that, at that point, it wasn't that big either, that bar, but it was big enough that like we could do one or two squares fairly comfortably. Um, and it was really, that was a super cool bar, actually. Mm. Our niece was awesome. But that regular gig, that every Monday night, was really good for, I guess you could say, a, a burgeoning musician, because it forces you to commit, it forces you to practice, you know, just that regularity, consistency is the foundation of professionalism really mm. so yeah. like you know we didn't make that much money doing it we tried but <laughs> um you know if we did build a group of people who like to do it and it would come back so that over time said to us like okay this is like inherently valuable as a way to bring people together so we started doing it in other places too like you know going to other cities and we we had a model where we basically play we'd play a set then we do a dance. Then we play a set. Then we do a dance. So Chris, my bandmate, he would come down off the stage, like wherever we were. And if it was in a college or something, then we just bring people onto the stage. But usually, like, like if we came to oh Union Tong, oh yeah like, right. If you play Union Tong, like yeah. it's a little weird to come down off the stage and then have like teach something because <laughs> you're like the stage yes. is quite high, right? Huge. And yes. then like the. The part where the audience is like a black hole, like, <laughs> but uh, we would stop playing. Like Chris would come down, we would wait while he taught the people in the audience how to dance the, the square dance, right. and then they would do it. They'd practice one time, then we'd play. We like on this the band would play, and then he would call the dance while people were in that pit, you know, mm. kind of like dancing. 
So, and then they'd take a break, like, okay, now go get some beer or whatever. And then, like, they would come back. He'd come back on stage. We'd take a break. And then we'd go again, like, do the second half. So it actually, as a show model, was kind of cool. Mm. It was it was different, for mm. sure. But o- over time, um, we started going to more and more and more places, like Yunnan, Dali, for example. Right, yes. I've seen videos of you yeah. in Dali a lot. Yeah. So a lot of that is through that band. There was that... That busy period there, like with the Hutong Yellow Weasels, which eventually changed its name to the Mountain High. Mm. So, like some some online, sometimes it says Hutong Yellow Weasels, sometimes it says Mountain High. Right. It's basically the same people, um, and that that was really like a life changing experience. Mm. That 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 team basically that did that. Yes. I, I think I really will never forget that team, and really appreciate that everyone was so willing to just keep going yeah, for so yeah. long. Um, That's I had what to, you made. So you moved to Shanghai. And... I moved to I moved to Shanghai during that period. Right. But I was still like when I moved to Shanghai, I was still not in Shanghai most of the time. Right. Because <laughs> I was like traveling, you know, traveling around all over the place. But it wasn't only just your music. It was also going back to your education as well. Like I've seen lots of videos of you playing the violin and the banjo at schools as well. So yeah, that's a big part of it. Like. Like I said, the, the point is to bring people together mm. and foster respect. So if you're trying to do that, you need to educate. And I think at first we were like, we're going to perform. And then people were like, what is this? Yeah. So actually our shows originally almost from the beginning had to become interactive because we didn't have the chops to like be that great. Like we couldn't really ask people to watch us. Uh, and a lot of people didn't know what it was. So the show inherently had to be educational too. We'd have to like explain what stuff yes. was, um, and so over time that just morphed into actual education, like actual workshops in schools, mm. universities, stuff like that. Um, music residencies, like Linden Center, for example, um, that kind of thing turned out to be, I think, in the in retrospect, I think those were some of the most unique parts of the experience. Because doing shows that that that's pretty conventional in a way, like. But bringing a foreign band into, like, a school with, like, migrant kids, you know, the, the, the children of migrant workers or something, and, like, doing a square dance, like, that's an experience that no one will ever forget yeah. is there, you know, and it might never happen again. Like, like you were talking about before, how, like, the video and the whole... So it's all coming together, so you've, this path is sort of like a... Yeah, know, I mean, I don't have a clear goal specifically. I mean, I do now. Like, I have, like, mm. several specific project goals. I have other goals. But, like, overall, the umbrella was, you know, originally, like, in college, like, I, lo- I wrote down my little list. Like, mm. this is what, I what are my rules, you know? Yes, like, yes. For you personally, I see that you brought out an EP. Yeah, uh, that no. was, I needed demos to get gigs. Right. Especially when I was doing solo stuff. Because, you know, if you're not on tour, you still need to make money and, like, do things. So. Yeah. I tried to set up some solo gigs, you know, in Beijing. And so in order to do that, usually you needed at least some recorded something to, like, evidence that you exist, you know. So this was this, like, violin, guitar, all yeah. different styles yeah, it was kind of, of a music? Yeah, mix of things. Yeah. Uh, and on my website, the kirkkenny.com, it's basically a hodgepodge of stuff that I've done over the years. Right. Since then, I've, start, I've kind of worked on other things, you mm. know. Like, there's the band I have now, Nomads, which has pre-existed me, but uh, I've joined this project 
Um, now, uh, Jay Z though. No, uh, Nomads is a group that mixes Chinese and American music. Basically, right. um, its focus tends to be bluegrass, though it's not only. The founding members, one of which is currently in the U.S. He first moved to Hong Kong, and then he was in mainland, right? So, like, he's basically been in China for, like, 30 years. And the other guy, whose name is Jerry, he is probably China's first Chinese banjo player. Because mm. uh, he and Tom Pang, the oh, yes. player, yes. they had a duo in, like, the early 2000s. They, they met in Inner Mongolia and, like, started learning some bluegrass. And that was back when Tom was still playing violin because mm. <laughs> he was a violin major. They moved to Hangzhou. They met Paul, the, the one who I said has been here for 30 years. And, like, he has tons of albums. <laughs> He's, like, a, a kind of a prolific songwriter, actually. And he was in the Balkans, like, yeah, a long right. time ago, and, like, the UN and stuff. Wow. Um, and so he, he's written, over the years, he's written about, like, wherever he is. And so mm. he's, like, presenting the way things are. Uh, anyway, they started, like, Paul and Jerry and stuff, they started this band to bring some musicians to the U.S. And then that turned into more stuff, and then eventually now we've got four members. I would play at Wooden Box. Mm. So my visa was attached to Wooden Box, basically. Right. Whereas... Uh, you know, other musicians who might play more jazz or pop stuff, they might be, they might play more at Jay-Z Club, where I also played in, like, also the uh, Jay-Z Live over in Hongzhou. Uh, no, mm. There we go. Um, I played all of them, and I like all of them, though I think Wooden Box was probably my favorite. Yes. It had that nice round vibe. Is that called a rotunda? Little piano? Is it piano? Yeah, there's a, that, the grand piano there. Mm. The piano, actually, for what we did, was super useless and, <laughs> and like, always in the way. Yeah. <laughs> so there's always, like, a tiny little yeah. corner for, like, okay, guys, we'll just stand around and, like, go. sorry, piano. You yeah. Know. For me, the piano was most useful for, like, putting a microphone on there to try and record our lives. Yes. But, now you're currently uh, teaching... I'm teaching. Yes. I'm, I, I am performing if there's a show. The, my most recent show was a, a wedding. Right. <laughs> my friend's wedding. That was awesome. We've done, we do festivals. Like the World Music Festival is the one I cooperate probably right. the close, most closely with. Like the, the team that organizes that is awesome. They're extremely devoted to authentic world music and like authentic folk music. Even this year and like last year, they still were able to like do something. Oh, it wasn't good. necessarily huge, but mm. they would still they can still do stuff in malls a little bit or right. uh, have workshops. It's Mindfulness like, is simply being aware of what is happening right now, without wishing it were different. Yeah, and that without wishing it were different part, I think, is the key thing. Is like, mm. okay, we know stuff now, but generally we're always kind of trying to get something more, and like. Maybe it's just okay what we have, but a lot of the time being okay with what we have means just not having a expectation about what you should have, right? So that also means like not having an expectation of the way things should be or the way other people should be. Hmm. And so I think education is, is the reason I'm trying to be as involved as I can with education instead of just doing music only um, is because I see the two as this really integrated set of tools Agreed. to get people to the point where 
they are okay with the way things are and they're okay with other people you know existing and talking you don't look too far into the future but what are your plans for when this gets better and maybe we can play more music outside so so what is your future new recordings and yeah more so study new recordings i have uh there's a japanese sanshin player from okinawa that Ooh. i want to play with he's coming over tomorrow actually we're going to try and record some stuff great i have a friend who and former teacher who plays arhu who i want to record with both of those would be banjo plus like arhu sanshin whatever so more of those kind of collaborative recordings. I just want to get those out. Like, just do it, get it out. Because at this point, if anything can happen, that's amazing. So mm. even if it just happens once, just get it done. Get yes. it out there. It's like yes. this podcast. Like, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Let's do this. I've got a project I'm thinking of writing a grant for uh, that will involve basically making like a music travel TV show. Yeah, right. Uh, so kind of like, I'm thinking like no reservations, but rather than just focusing on food and travel, it'd be like music, music exchange, like, oh, like I'm a musician, let's travel around, like go meet these musicians. And then like, of course you can talk about the touristy bits, you know, mm. and the food and stuff, because that's inevitable. But in, in this case, I think it would be really fruitful to show a foreign person going around China and being really interested in local music mm. in around place because uh yes absolutely a chinese person could do it and there are definitely f way better chinese musicians here than i will ever be but why a foreign person i think because a lot of people are sort of tuned into what foreigners think mm. about china and china has a wealth and diversity of incredible music that people just have no idea about yes so I, I'm just basically thinking like, okay, how can I bring attention to that. all that music, that that really rich history and culture that's just everywhere. It's everywhere. Like, um, and I think people just keep forgetting about it. Yeah. Basically. So that those those are like some of the big directions I'm I'm heading into, um, and then personally, like I was saying, you know, taking online lessons with people. Like it occurred to me, like, oh, actually, you know what? you like Brittany Haas who is an amazing fiddler you like Brian Sutton who is an amazing bluegrass guitarist these people are actually pretty famous but you can actually just like connect directly with them and study like mm. you don't have to be a stranger you know you don't have to be a fan you can connect directly with these famous famous people because they all teach yes. <laughs> like go study with them they're happy to like take your money and like and teach you stuff that's what they they want more people to learn about it the last thing I'll say is like along those lines, I'm trying to put together like a timeline of, I guess you could say American folk music in China or like a sort of mm. like engagement between the two, you know, like the country roads story, for example, might be on that timeline, like right. people hearing country roads for the first time. And like now every musician ever has to play it no matter what, you know, well, and you know, the, the people have written about rock music in China and it's super interesting but no one's really written about like country music or bluegrass right yeah. i just found out uh what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given there was the one i mentioned before which was not direct advice but was where the drummer from my school he said like i need to accept that i'm a musician like mm. to me you know for some people that's just all you have to do is just say you know what i'm a musician 
and I don't have to apologize for that. The other thing is um, my dad's advice, which I think I have to remind myself of <laughs> from time to time, which uh, was don't give yourself unnecessary pressure because it's so easy to do that. And it's really easy to take on pressure from other people too. A lot of people are usually, whether they know it or not, they're often putting their pressure or their problems on you. Um, and it's important to be able to either let it go, let that wash off you right away mm. and not take it on, or also resist and say, like put up boundaries and say like, this is your problem. <laughs> Tell us about your social medias and where can we find you online? Yeah, I th probably LinkedIn is best, actually. Mm. I base that's my most up-to-date thing. Um, KirkKenny.com is my website. I will be updating it. There's also KirkSings.com, which is a project I'd rather people pay attention to than my website because mm. the whole idea with KirkSings.com is you write a letter to someone. You, pay, you copy and paste your, the letter of your text into this form on the website. And then it sends it to me, and then I will turn it into a song. And then I send you the, a song version of your letter. Right. So that to me is extremely meaningful. And I've gotten some amazing letters from people, incredibly moving. There is, there's, there's one from a woman named Amanda on there, a letter to her father during, at the height of COVID, like March, April 2020. That, mm. was, that one was like, I, when I was recording it, singing, I was like, creep, I was crying, you know, like, like, oh my God, I have to stop and like re-record be like, okay, okay, go. Yeah. That was, anyway, KirkSings.com, KirkKenny.com, LinkedIn, whatever, slash KirkKenny. Uh, last question, who's your greatest inspiration slash hero and why? Okay, uh, a China-related one. Um, Brian and Jeannie Linden are both super inspiring to me. They have the Linden Center. And Brian actually just wrote a book, which is over there in my bookshelf. They just did a big write-up about those two people? Uh, I think recently I shared a post about his book, which had just come out. Yes! In fact, it's right there. You can reach oh. it. It's like, their commitment, he and his wife both, I, I've, I've grouped them together as a unit. <laughs> but um, they're extremely, they're highly functioning <laughs> people. And they've been doing some incredible work for decades. Um, that's you know the kind of thing I was I was saying like, is this Sindali? Yeah, that's the, that's the, 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 mount, the, the uh, minority people. Well, that, those are ba I think those are Baidu. Like basically, right. their their main place was in Sijo, uh, part of Dali, just just north of the Gutan, and uh, they have a huge place there, which is actually now three compounds, and they have a place in Shashi, and they opened up a new place in Suzhou also. Um, which last almost exactly a year ago we did a New Year's Eve event at their Suzhou place which was super cool um, that it's like basically they take huge uh, unused historical uh, buildings and then renovate them and then turn them into kind of like eco hotels slash uh, community event spaces mm -hmm. so they're kind of like the point being to support that local community and keep keep because what was happening in the Sijo was people were leaving to get jobs in the city and so you had this like kind of weird um disparity going on with like you had like babies and old people right so it was kind of a way of keeping jobs in the area and have and also reminding people that their their local traditions and culture are 
are amazing. Like that mm. people want to know about those and that they're valuable. People will come and pay money to like learn about that or experience that. So, so it, that kind of gets back to what I was saying about that TV show idea about like a foreigner traveling around and like showing, looking at stuff, being like, "Whoa!" Just it's just another reminder. It's not the only thing, but it's just another reminder that like, "Oh, you know what? Actually, my history and culture is amazing." Like, okay, I thought it was stupid because. You know, on TV, there's a bunch of, like, pop songs and stuff, like, singers, like, trying to compete with each other. And yeah. none of that has anything to do with my, like, traditional culture. But actually, uh, actually, what I do and my history and stuff has value, you know. That's that's basically what they did. It's just, it is amazing. And, and they've kept doing it for so long, which I think is the amazing part. Mm. Just, that's tenacity. Yeah. Know? That's, I think, one of the, if I could, like, sum up the whole China experience is, like, if you come to China and stay here, you will learn tenacity. Like, it doesn't matter what, who you are, what you do. Like, if you stick around here, like, you will, you will become a more tenacious person. Yes. I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a great way to finish it off. Yeah, man. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Craig. Great story. And you've got a very bright future ahead of you. Thank um, you. I like how you're very passionate and you're always wanting to, okay, I've learned that. I want to go to this place now and learn all about this. So yeah. I really think that's very motivating and inspiring uh, Thank you. for young musicians as well. So all the best. Heal up and get out there and start <laughs> playing again.
stars in heaven above were safe there for a while. Hi, I'm Nigel the Shanghai Psychic. I can tune into your loved ones in the spirit world, but I can also tune into you, tell you about your path and the choices that you need to make and need to know. I'm currently giving 30% discount on all Tell Craig Your Story listeners. Just use the code Tell Craig Your Story for 30% off your first psychic reading with me online at Nigel the Shanghai Psychic.